For this final episode, we make sense of everything and pull some greater meaning out of all this research. I started this project as a way to understand Little Rock and figure out what I want my relationship to be with the city as I look beyond graduation. As I did the research, I found that the personal meaning I was searching for was also academically meaningful. I had to make sense of the systemic issues in Little Rock and see how the city's history affects contemporary reality to understand the city and my relationship with it. I can't say creating this podcast brought all the clarity I hoped it would, but I now appreciate so many things about Little Rock that I wasn't aware of before. March 2019, as I was sitting in the library writing this episode, I realized the conclusions I was trying to make about crime, underdevelopment, and poverty weren't as clean as I wanted them to be. Trying to clearly map the areas where municipal underdevelopment, high poverty, and high crime coincided wasn't working. All this time, I had spent learning about crime south of the interstate, in the quote-unquote bad areas of the city, but I hadn't acknowledged the crime that exists in my neighborhood. And there's plenty of it. Crime in all its forms exists throughout the city, even in the wealthy, white, western part of the city where I live. About 10 houses down from mine, an executive of one of Little Rock's banks was investigated by the FBI for fraud and money laundering. One neighborhood over, a man set his house on fire in an attempt to commit insurance fraud. The body of a high-profile murder victim was found in one of our neighborhood parks. A car hop at the local Sonic was shot five times, and people talked about the shooting as if it were gang-related, maybe an initiation ritual. And even considering neighborhood blight, meaning substandard housing, abandoned buildings, and vacant lots, and how damaging that has been for the southern parts of the city, the house next door to mine was abandoned for about five years. The grass grew high enough to violate city code, and the pool in the backyard turned into a pond, where I went to catch frogs in the summer. But these crimes did not damage the reputation of my neighborhood. They were horrible individual events, but they were thought of as exactly that. Individual events. Not representations of the community, not reflections of the people who live there. So why then are we so quick to judge when crime or blight occurs somewhere we don't want to associate with? But when it happens close to home, we treat it as something completely different. For this episode, we'll consider the broad research questions that motivated and shaped this podcast. When we look at crime in the whole city, why does crime hurt the perception of neighborhoods south of the highway more than in my neighborhood? Clearly, there's a difference in the way crime is perceived, so what conclusions do we make from evaluating the role of perception? What do the efforts to reduce crime in Little Rock tell us about how the city understands crime? Why focus on crime in the first place? Throughout this research, what have we learned? Considering how important the role of perception is and how the city talks about and works to reduce crime, I wanted to get to the bottom of how that perception is constructed in the first place. For a lot of people, this perception is created by the media. Big throw with violence in these little rock streets. The kids can't play and the girl can't chill. People getting killed, things that got too real. It's time to drop the guns and have some fun for real. Big throw with violence in these little rock streets. The kids can't play and the girl can't chill. People getting killed, things that got too real. It's time to drop the guns and have some fun for real. A little over two years ago, Austin Kellerman, the news director of KARK and Fox 16 News in Little Rock, started the Victory Over Violence campaign alongside his newsroom staff as a reaction to the violence in Little Rock. The newsroom staff became angry and frustrated, having to constantly cover crime stories, but felt the stories were still important for the city. 
Specifically, after the deaths of three-year-old Asen King and two-year-old Ramaya Reed, the news stations felt like they needed to do something bigger and bolder than they ever had. It started with a blog post that was basically like, what can we do as a city? Come up with ideas and we'll help support them. You know, various people kind of stepped up and, and said, here's what I do and here's what I can bring to the table. Or I have this group and I feel like I can um, help out in this way. And so we got together kind of a brain trust of people in the station, outside of the station, some city leaders, um, some community activists, and just came up with the idea to start the Victory Over Violence campaign, which was more about uniting groups who are already doing things under a single umbrella um, and really just trying to raise awareness for anti-violence and anti-crime efforts. Um, there were a lot of groups who were doing really good things but nobody knew about them. Or groups were doing the exact same thing in different areas of town or in some ways maybe even competing against each other. And so our goal was to give them a bigger platform, talk about them on TV, show what they're doing on TV, and try to kind of rally community support um, around them. The Victory Over Violence campaign sought to bring awareness to violence and increase the city's sense of community through its four pillars, education, jobs, hunger, and mentoring. Victory Over Violence also hosts community walks and block parties in neighborhoods most affected by crime. With the media, there's a tension between trying to reduce crime by increasing awareness and covering it, potentially bringing negative attention to an area, while simultaneously trying to build positive relationships with the areas immediately affected by that crime, so everyone can work together to decrease the violence. But even still, the new staff has to decide how they're going to cover crime and what their overall message should be. Yes, we're going to cover crime, but we're also going to take steps to promote and empower groups that work to stop it. So I think the narrative, you know, one has to be the truth. What's taking place? How big of an impact does it have on our city? What impact does it have on the perception of the city from people who live across the state and, and beyond? So I think the truth is important, but I think the narrative that, that we've tried to take is also um, it doesn't have to be this way. We can be a better Little Rock. We've been a better Little Rock. We've had lower crime rates. We've had lower homicide rates. Um, so let's rally as a community to make it that way once again. A lot of times people will say, oh, a news station, just be impartial and call things down the middle. I don't think there's anyone out there who says, I'd like crime to, to be in Little Rock. You know, I like Little Rock to be unsafe. So it's a nonpartisan issue. So then, considering the role of perception in informing how a city thinks about crime, when you turn on the television and watch local news, and the first several stories are about crime, what does that make you think about a place? What's that like when you amplify it across a whole city? In some ways, it creates a negative perception of the city. Um, and I think most people would agree with that. But again, it kind of goes back to you know, what are the truths? We cover probably as many restaurant openings and closings as we do shootings. What does the viewer remember? The shootings. Is that our problem or is that the viewers? You know, I mean, you can kind of sit there and debate that, but um, certainly negative news and the impact of news outweighs positive news, which is unfortunate. It's just kind of the reality. So from that standpoint, you know, you're very aware when you cover a crime story of, of the impact that it could have. But again, you want to tell the truth of the city, what's taking place in the city, you know, and you give an audience, you know, and we're a business. 
and we provide product that we want people to consume. And so if you know, we post stories on our website and crime stories you know, do four times the business of a restaurant opening, for any business, you're going to try to give the consumer what they want. You have the challenge of the psyche, but you also have the what does the consumer want to consume. And so um, that's always going to be a delicate balance, I think, for any news organization. So it's all about, you know, trying to take the most responsible approach you can when you present it. But again, you know, you don't want to hide the truth. This was one of my main takeaways from this project. The media is responsible for producing and framing the news, but we're responsible for consuming it. How we get our news, whether or not we fact-check it, and what we do with it, that's on us. Remember that Law Street Media report from Episode 1 that said Little Rock was the most dangerous city of its size? How different would conversations about crime be if residents of Little Rock recognized the misleading information in that article? This distortion of perception, in part created by the media, has consequences much larger than simply affecting an individual's view of the city. According to Brian Griffith and the mayor's office, these perceptions directly affect the work of the city government. In Little Rock, I think it goes back to that perception issue as much as anything. One of the things we struggle with is the perception that, that crime is higher in Little Rock that, than it is. Um, and so it is almost a self-fulfilling prophecy in that people talk about Little Rock as a high crime area. And so it, that fuels itself to actually becoming the reality where I think there's really a lot of good things going on that don't get covered. And so the more that this, the news um, and the newspapers and, and, each, and even individuals lead with bad news every night, every time, I think that that does have an effect on, on growth in the city and, and on recruiting new businesses or visitors or, or, or that sort of thing. Uh, one thing we, we see a ton of in the city is that people's number one reaction to coming to Little Rock is, it's so much nicer than I thought it would be. It's, it's a surprise. So according to Brian, the city's elevated perception of crime is limiting our growth and damaging the potential of the city. But if we look at specific neighborhoods that bear the brunt of this negative perception and are labeled with this bad neighborhood reputation, how does the perception of crime perpetuated by the media affect them? This is J.D. Lowry, one of the leaders of the Southwest Little Rock Business Alliance, a nonprofit created to enhance the community and improve the image of Southwest Little Rock. There's a perception um, of Southwest Little Rock. Right, wrong, or indifferent, there's a perception that it's a dangerous place, that it's not a desirable place to be. We're, we're trying to, to do whatever we can to help, you know, remedy the reality and help the perception of the area because there's a lot of good things going on in the area. There's a lot of good people here. Um, it's a very unique part of the city. So not only do we want to kind of help advocate for it, whether it's to the media or, you know, standing up and helping um, with issues that come before at City Hall in terms of infrastructure, making sure Southwest Little Rock projects are getting looked at just like they are in the Heights or other parts of the city. Mm -hmm. We don't begrudge the good things happening in other parts of the city because certainly that complements and helps Southwest Little Rock be a better place as well. Um, it's just about providing some sort of representation of voice um, um, to what's happening in this part of the city. J.D. says part of the negative perception of the southwest part of the city comes from the media. But at the end of the day, there is actual criminal activity there. The night before our interview, there was a homicide in that district.
the ways people in a city perceive crime affect how they then respond to it. Two of the primary efforts to reduce crime, reentry programs and economic development, meaning job creation, are straightforward. If crime rates in Little Rock are high because formerly incarcerated people are having trouble reintegrating back into society and fall back to crime, creating programs to offer specific forms of support will decrease crime. And if people generally are looking at participating in criminal activities as a means to support themselves, then giving them more legitimate means of support will also decrease crime. But I want to return to the discussion of broken windows theory, mentioned in more than a handful of my interviews. It's not as straightforward as these other crime reduction methods, and it fits in with this greater theme of perception. Since I'm not convinced the city perceives crime in totally accurate ways, I'm also not convinced that broken windows theory is the best way to approach the problem. Let's review. What is broken windows theory? Here's the man who made it so popular, Mayor Rudy Giuliani. I very much uh, subscribe to the broken windows theory, uh, a theory that was developed by professors uh, Wilson and Kelling 25 years ago, maybe. The, and the idea of it is you had to pay attention to small things. Otherwise, they'd get out of control and they'd become much worse. And that, in fact, you know, in a lot of our, of our approach to crime, uh, quality of life, social programs, we were allowing small things to get worse rather than, than dealing with them at the earliest possible stage. So, uh, Broken windows theory became popular in the 1990s when Mayor Giuliani implemented it in New York City. When the city saw a huge crime decrease in the 90s, other police departments took notice and began to implement broken windows policing strategies. With broken windows policing, the notion of informal social control required to make the model work would take a long time to establish. It's not something that happens immediately when you clean up a neighborhood and fix small aesthetic problems. And some critics of the policy even say that broken windows theory led to over-policing and the degradation of police-community relations. So why would people across Little Rock reference this theory that may or may not be valuable? For one, it's simple. It allows us to focus on crime in a way that we can directly control. We can do things, easy things, to make neighborhoods look nicer and prevent bigger crimes. Broken windows theory has a lot to do with the structural and systemic aspects of the city's development, or of urban development strategy. Development in this context means which parts of the city get investment from the government and the private sector, where businesses concentrate, how segregation in the city evolves over time, and which neighborhoods get labeled as being good or bad. It relates back to that resource distribution we talked about in the last episode. So if the city buys into this theory and uses it as a basis for policy, we should see efforts from the city to focus on the economic and social development of high crime areas, encouraging outside investment, stepping up code enforcement to maintain properties, things like that. And to an extent, that's happening, but slowly. The city government's investment at the 12th Street station south of 630, and nonprofits like the University District Development Partnership that focuses on revitalizing one neighborhood south of 630, indicate that people are using broken windows theory to initiate positive change. But this theory relies on the identification of neighborhoods in disrepair. So it would make sense then that the city would focus on crime happening in neighborhoods that lack resources, have higher levels of poverty, and are aesthetically in disrepair. With broken windows theory, that's where crime happens. But in Little Rock, while certain types of crime may be concentrated in these areas, the actual scope of where crime happens is much more broad. Consequently, the approach to reducing crime needs to be more broad as well.
Something I struggled with during this project was how to make sense of the possible misperception of crime in the city, and how much that inspired people to act. On the one hand, the false alarms that were raised about Little Rock being the most dangerous city, or the frequent mentions of a crime spike that didn't really happen, made me think, maybe our crime isn't that bad. But I don't think people across the city would have taken to reducing crime as intensely as they did had we not had those clickbait false alarms. And there is crime in the city. There are homicides. And even one homicide is too many. But the crime rate is decreasing. So even if the ways in which we perceive and react to crime are misinformed, at least they are somewhat working. But is it sustainable to have programs designed to reduce crime that were triggered by misinformation? As I've mentioned, Little Rock lives like two different cities, largely divided by the highway. And part of what's keeping these areas so separate is this perception or misperception of crime. There are tangible disparities about the attitudes people have about crime depending on where in the city it happens. City director Ken Richardson sees this as a barrier to meaningfully addressing the crime problem. We don't have the same kind of reaction uh, of violence based on where it happens, who it happens to. I mean, I, I, I just think that's unfortunate. And I think that in many of these communities where we have homicides and we treat each one like an aberration, I think we can get stuff done. Consider also that this podcast, these interviews, most of the crime maps of Little Rock, and the FBI data all focus on one classification of crime. UCR Part 1, being arson, homicide, burglary. If we included Part 2 crimes, like fraud, disorderly conduct, and DUIs, would our discussions about crime be different? That brings us to one of the central questions. If crime is so complicated, so convoluted, why did I choose to focus on it as a way to learn about the city? Warwick Sabin, who has served as an Arkansas state legislator and ran for mayor in the 2018 election, summed it up nicely in our interview. It doesn't matter if you know you live in the Heights and you think that you are immune to the crime problem in Southwest Little Rock. Like, you're affected by it, whether you know it or not, because our economy is affected by it. You know, the decisions people make about where to live, where to locate a business, where to start a business, um, where to put their kids in school, all of that is affected, and we're either going to rise or fall together as a city. So thinking about this question of why crime, crime has affected all of this. Crime was not the only actor in how Little Rock came to be what it is today but it's one perspective we can look at to understand the ways in which the city has developed. Crime is universal. It looks different in different parts of the city, and it's experienced differently by different groups, but everyone has a stake in it. And then coming back to this theme of city development. Usually when we talk about development, we think of country-level issues like GDP or foreign investment, but for this project, these development ideas have been applied to one mid-sized city. In part, we looked at how crime affects the way the city developed economically, how the city divides municipal resources, and how conversations about crime fit into that, where opportunities for employment exist in the city, and which areas are left without, and that economics itself may drive crime in some areas. But we also focused on social development, like segregation, and how that contributed to the perception of crime, the two different cities that exist within Little Rock, and the historical relations between communities and the police. So thinking about this question of why crime, crime has affected all of this. Crime was not the only actor in how Little Rock came to be what it is today, but it's one perspective we can look at to understand the ways in which the city has developed. My main academic takeaways, primarily when considering crime, 
think about all the parts of the problem. Don't just look at the crime, but consider the ways the city's historical legacies influence how we live in a city today. Consider poverty and unemployment, how strong the city governance is in various neighborhoods, what community relations with the police have been throughout history, how segregation impacts each neighborhood, where access to public transportation is lacking, and so much more that I didn't address. As a second takeaway, don't expect the city government to do everything when it comes to reducing crime, because it can't. But it doesn't have to. In Little Rock, there are grassroots groups, nonprofits, churches, activists, social movements, businesses, and more working to reduce crime. Crime affects the whole city, and it affects everyone who lives here. So there's something everyone can do to reduce crime and work to decrease the inequities that are so clearly visible. And finally, consider the role of perception in how people talk and think about crime. We need to be critical of all the information we receive, always. And we need to pay attention to how we interpret that information, too. Consider what might happen if we went outside of our own comfort zones within the city and got to know neighborhoods we didn't usually visit. If we extended our social capital, the networks and relationships that we are already part of, to include those south of the highway who face more systemic barriers than those in the north. Consider what might happen if we genuinely evaluated the systems that keep Little Rock so segregated and worked to break them down. And consider what Little Rock could be if we stopped living like there are two cities and worked to better the one we share. I created this podcast in an effort to understand Little Rock, but I got more out of it than that. It helped me appreciate all the people who return to the cities they come from, embrace them as they are, and work to make them better. I got to see firsthand that despite how heavily our history weighs on this city, so much good is happening here, in spite of, or maybe because of, all the bad. I'm still figuring out what my immediate next step is, but I do eventually want to return to Little Rock. As I talk to people around the city, the inequalities, the segregation, all of the systemic problems, they seemed more manageable. The city became less of a behemoth web of powerful systems that could never be changed, and more the product of deliberate design, designs that could be changed. And since I do feel a sense of responsibility for helping to correct the inequities in my community, getting to know the city this way has been motivating. At the very least, if I move home, I know a few places I can start. For me, I know there's beauty in working toward equity and bettering a community wherever it may be. Just because a city may be small, or in this case, mid-sized, it's absolutely worth the effort. Think about what could happen if instead of getting discouraged and writing off our hometowns, we got over that and joined those already there working to make them better. My friends, if there's one lesson I learned, one thing I want to leave you with, it's this. There's a lot of beauty in going home. Let's see, those are all the questions that I have. Is there anything else that you want to add? Well, I, I do want to add this. I think that at the end of the day, wh what you're doing should be times a thousand. We need more people really honestly wanting to know and not for show 
really wanting to have a clear understanding of what's going on in our streets. And maybe, just maybe, we can get some things done because the worst case scenario is the people who can help and not knowing what to do. Well, excellent. Thank All right, you. thank you. <laughs>《Back to Little Rock》is a senior capstone project for the Center for Interdisciplinary Studies at Davidson College. The music is provided by Motion and cover art by Sebastian Salasale. For more information about this project, visit backtolittlerock.com. I would also like to say thank you to everyone I interviewed, emailed, and an extra special thank you to Dr. Joseph A. Woodsy and Dr. Matt Sampson, my advisors, who made this project possible. <laughs>